last night. There's some more in this speaker which is quite interesting other than the elements, but we'll finish with the air element first. Air is also wind, huh? it's sometimes called air, sometimes wind. And um, what is the air element? The air element can either be in oneself or external. What is the air element in oneself? Whatever in oneself, belonging to oneself, is air, airy and clung to. That is to say, upgoing wind, downgoing wind, wind in the belly, wind in the bowel, wind that pervade all the limbs, in-breath and out-breath, or whatever else in oneself, belonging to oneself, is air, airy and clung to. This is called air element in oneself. Now, air element in oneself and external are simply air elements, and that should be seen as it actually is, with right understanding that. This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. When a man sees it thus with right understanding, as it actually is, he becomes dispassionate towards the air element. Lust fades for the air element out of his mind. So in oneself, it's um, wings that we have in the body, and of course the breath, which is most uh, noticeable as the air element. And um, now, he's going to talk about the air element outside of ourselves. There is an occasion when the external air element is disturbed. It sweeps away village, town, city, district, and country. There is an occasion in the last month of the hot season when they seek wings by means of a fan or bellows and even the strands of straw in the drip fringe of the thatch do not stir. Well, First of all, we're talking about uh, uh, cyclones, hurricanes, and so forth that uh, sweep away, well, whole village, whole town, and so forth. And uh, then he says, but also there are months when it's hot, when there's absolutely no no wind, and one wants to use a fan or a bellows, or we using air conditioners, and even the strands of straw in the drip fringe of the thatch do not stir. So all the houses had thatched roofs in those days. And there is, instead of having um, the um, rain, um, what do you call it, rain, um, not about the, uh, uh, the gutters, uh, there's, this is the gutter, the strand of straw in the drip fringe the drip fringe where the rain drops down and there's strands of straw hanging down that's where we have the gutter <laughs> and that is not being stirred by the wind there's this little strands of straw are not being stirred in other words there's no wind at all it's really muggy and uh, um, uh, oppressing and other times we have hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons and uh, uh, so much wind that it's um, quite dangerous. So that's what that sentence is all about. For even this external air element, great as it is, is describable as impermanent, as subject to destruction, to disappearance, to change. So what of this body, which is clung to, and lasts but a while? There can be no considering that as I, or mine, or I am. So again and again, he tells us to examine ourselves in the light of these four elements 
which are so much greater outside of us than they are within and even outside of us they are disturbed and destroyed they <coughs> disappear completely they reappear in much too great a force and uh, we certainly will not identify with that we would never call ourselves <coughs> identifiable with a hurricane but we do identify with the breath that's my breath and I'm out of breath or I'm this breath or that breath so there we identify but there we don't so why make such a difference huh? excuse me <coughs> now I'm going to have to find the um, I'll read it again so then having seen this element this air element as it actually is if others abuse and scold curse and threaten a bhikkhu he understands thus this painful feeling born of ear contact has arisen in me that is dependent not independent <clears throat> dependent on what? depend on contact and then he sees that contact is impermanent that feeling is impermanent perception is impermanent formations are impermanent and consciousness is impermanent and his mind which has already made A constituent of the uh, of the air aggregate of this element, its objective support enters into that new objective support now contemplated and acquires confidence, steadiness, and decision. This is the same paragraph that was uh, for all the other elements, and it's again with the ear contact is being used. But also, what is being said is that we can see the dependence of each aggregate upon the other because there was ear contact feeling arises from feeling comes the perception the mental formation so they are dependent they are not independent they're all depending on contact and having seen this dependency we also see the impermanence and having already used the support system that this is all elements we are made of elements we now have another support system by seeing the aggregates right and then comes the attack with fists and claws and sticks and the same thing again that is the air element and nothing really is being done except that the air element is being um, hit and uh, and then one should recollect Buddha Dhamma Sangha and use that as another support and realize that it's a great loss for oneself if there is no equanimity if one remembers what it says in the Dhamma so if there is equanimity established a bhikkhu has done much so this takes care of the elements and now Sariputta speaks about something else he says just as when a space is enclosed by timber and creepers grass and clay this is how they used to build their houses there comes to be the term house so too when a space is enclosed by bones and sinews flesh and skin there comes to be the term body so he's comparing this body of ours with a, 
empty space which has now been enclosed and he's using they're using timber and creepers and grass and clay and then they have a house and when we do have this enclosure here with the skin we have a body but in reality we've got bits and pieces all stuck together by skin and now he explains how our sense contacts come about I see the whole idea of all this um, taking ourselves apart the analysis is to get us away from this very um, deluded idea that we are one whole thing called me there's this thing sitting here called me but in reality there are so many parts of the body 32 parts of the body enclosed by skin which are called now my body me and then there's all this mind activity so he says if the eye then that's the eye the physical eye EYE yeah? if the eye in oneself were intact but no external forms came to its threshold of consciousness and there were no appropriate conscious engagement then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness wonderful sentence quite clear <laughs> I'm sure it's literally translated I'm sure that Nyanamoli wouldn't have made it up I'm sure it's translated the Pali well actually all it says is this if our eyes are working in other words this is called the eye base Huh? it's working it's not a glass eye it's not the blind it's nothing it's working right so if this thing is intact but there's nothing to be seen it's all it's totally empty there's absolutely nothing to be seen no external form no external form came to the threshold of consciousness nothing there the eye consciousness and there were no appropriate conscious engagement in other words the eye cannot engage with any outer form because it just doesn't appear on its threshold there would be no manifestation of that class of consciousness of seeing there's no seeing very simple if the eye is working and there's nothing to see no, no seeing happens so what we're talking about here is that we have an, a base a sense base then we have a sense object something to see in this case and where actually the two are meeting the consciousness the eye consciousness the seeing consciousness and the form meet and when they meet seeing results but of course we never do that we just see we never have any idea that all this is happening because we have our eyes open and not asleep we're constantly seeing something but what is what he what Sariputta is trying to point out and of course it is from the Buddha it's just repeating what the Buddha has said what he wants to point out is that actually there are three things happening before seeing starts a sense space which is in order a sense object which is on the threshold of consciousness in other words it can be it's not too far away so one can actually the, the eye can actually contact make contact with it and with that contact 
the consciousness is engaged not that we are sort of staring into nothingness we are engaging the eye with that eye object and only then after those three things have happened the seeing results quite clear? Hmm? okay now if the eye in oneself were intact and external forms came to its threshold so now we've got an eye which is working and there are forms to be seen but there were no appropriate conscious engagement in other words the eye is not engaging with that external form there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness there's no seeing but it is owing to the fact that the eye in oneself is intact and external form comes to its threshold there's something to see and that there is the appropriate conscious engagement the eye actually contacts the eye contact that there is manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness seeing results all three things have happened three things have happened and seeing results whatever form of what has come to be thus is included in the form aggregate affected by clinging the sense consciousness actually we usually consider that as the as part of the mind but what he's saying here is not whatever form has uh, of what has come to be that he's not referring to that seeing aspect he's starting out again so whatever form of what has come to be thus there has to be an engagement so that the form is actually appearing we are engaging in the seeing of the form otherwise the form would not appear for us it's included in the form aggregate affected by clinging whatever feeling of what has come to be thus is included in the feeling aggregate affected by clinging so whatever has appeared to the eye as a form is now included in the form aggregate affected by clinging whatever feeling has arisen that is included in the feeling aggregate so these are external triggers which are giving us these results right the same goes for perception mental formations and sense consciousness So there is um, because of these external happenings through our senses, all this sense contact is external happenings when we don't when we don't have the thinking as the sense contact, but just the five senses. All these five senses that makes this external contact then bring about these aggregate of mind to arise. He understands us. This, it seems, is how there comes to be inclusion, gathering, amassing into these five aggregates affected by clinging. So all this um, sense contact business that we do all the time, we see and we hear and we taste and we touch and we smell, is directed outwardly. And because we have that outer trigger which has happened, the consciousness, the smelling or the tasting or the touching has arisen, 
because of this outer trigger we now have the four aspects of mind happening and there is all this is included there's an amassing and this amassing including gathering together of aggregates and so we actually see if we do it this way we see everything as aggregates we can either see everything as elements or we can see everything as aggregates but particularly because we're using our own responses we can see the aggregates and so this is all included in aggregates and it gives us a different view of the world so now this has been said by the blessed, blessed one he who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma he who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination <coughs> this is one of the most famous sentences of the Buddha and it's usually used for the 12 point dependent origination the Paticca Samuppada which gives us an a bird's eye view of how we come to be starting from ignorance and ending with death it's usually thought to be three lifetimes which are shown but it can all be connected into one lifetime and it's a very interesting and uh, most uh, informative way of dividing up our whole life experience into this kind of understanding that everything that comes to be has to have an originating condition and because all originating conditions are impermanent and subject to change nothing that has come to be can ever be satisfactory we can never rely on any originating condition the only thing that is unconditioned is Nibbana it's got nothing in it but because it's got nothing in it most people don't strive for it because we do want Papancha, we want proliferation we want me to be around and actually one of the biggest mistakes that can happen doesn't have to but it can can be the idea of I would like to enjoy Nibbana it's a complete and utter impossibility it's a contradiction in terms there's nobody that can enjoy Nibbana because Nibbana can only happen if there's nobody there so this kind of uh, view can be undermined when we divide ourselves up into aggregates and see how the outer triggers make all the aggregates happen to arise and function and how we then put our me inside and say I'm seeing I feel nice about that it makes me feel so good I want to keep it now that's a me in there in the aggregate which has a there's nothing except an aggregate but the me has got into it so we can undermine our viewpoint through this um, analysis into aggregate and here the reason Sai Putta is using this sentence because it is a Buddha sentence and he did use it for the 12 point dependent origination is because the aggregates are dependent upon each other and the arising of them, each one, is dependent upon the outer trigger so these are all dependency syndromes 
Okay, is this clear with any questions? Yes. I just have a question about this uh, dependent arising. Everything that arises depends on something. And it's, it's sort of a very timeless thing because it means that it could never really begun. Because it, it could never have had the conditions to begin. Well, it did have conditions to begin. These are, there are four questions which are called the imponderables, which the Buddha did not answer. And I shall not gainsay him by trying to answer any of them. And they are the beginning of the universe, the intricacies of karma, karma the uh, range of a Buddha, the range of influence, and the range of influence of a person in jhana. These are the four imponderables which you wouldn't answer. You said you don't have to know because it's not going to help you to get enlightened. When you do get enlightened, you will know anyway. So that was the answer to that one. He shows it in a circular form. The pendulum arising is shown in a big, great big circle. He himself originated that a drawing, like a teaching aid. And he drew that into the sand with a stick for his monks. A very crude, just a drawing of a circle and then divided into 12 parts. Um, that was later, uh, by his permission, made into a, a more uh, elegant drawing and hung into every doorway of every monastery in India. They were all destroyed when the Muslim invasion was. But uh, this particular a teaching aid was taken into Tibet by some of the uh, Indian pundits who went to Tibet with the teaching and today we can still see it in a very elaborate form and very beautifully done because Tibetan art is very intricate and elaborate and we can see it, it's usually called the wheel of birth and death and it's a very interesting drawing according to what the uh, um, artist thinks you know, should be there it is very traditional, there are tankas like that, they're very traditional. It's not what the Buddha drew in the sand, obviously, but it certainly has exactly that meaning, and it's always a circle. And we can start explaining the circle, of course, at any point, but we usually start at ignorance, and that is the beginning of vicha, ignorance. And it's like, it's always depicted as a blind woman, a blind old lady, with a, a walking stick, trying to find a way through a very a dense forest. And that's the pig stuff. And in this case, it's a lady, actually. <laughs> All of a sudden, ignorance became female. <laughs> kind <of> win. And it's very difficult to do anything about that because it's hard enough to remember all this stuff without trying to change the language. <laughs> so there's no um, beginning and there's no end. There's no Big Bang Theory, not at all. It's a constant, reoccurring circle and it is a constant contraction and expansion where the universe also disappears, according to the Buddha's words, and reappears. So there's no beginning and no end really so when one sees it that way and actually experiences that in one's own um, feeling about it 
all this rushing about and trying to be somebody and get somewhere is so absurd that one can only laugh at it there's no end to it there's no beginning it's just going on and on and on and on that's what he's trying to show us anything else about this is this quite clear what I was trying to explain it sounded a bit complicated to me when I was listening to myself is it clear (laughs) (laughs) but is it clear or is there something that isn't clear I mean actually it's totally simple it's just it's a little bit difficult to put it into these words because we're not used to them we're supposed to, you know, we're only used to seeing things. We're not used to dividing it up into four parts. But that's what is happening. It's dividing it up into three parts until the seeing actually happens. You know, and also the dependency of each aggregate on the other, and the whole thing depends upon the outer sense contact. And this is dependent origination, yes. There was, yeah, one thing that came to mind about it. When the eye sees and the form is, is seen also, then that, that form aggregate comes into being. Could you just explain if that's already there? There must be, if there's the form aggregate, there must be cling, clinging, clinging, isn't it? Because that's the, the basis for the aggregate. So if form is seen, then clinging must be there. Uh, the, the logical conclusion that if one is seeing it, that they're clinging there. Um, the clinging in this case is actually not necessarily to the form itself the clinging in this case is to the seeing of it I'm seeing this it could be to the form if the form is considered to be desirable yes that is the seeing. That's the clinging. The form to be a clinging. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we can tell that when we do it. I mean, we don't want to be blind. It's quite clear. I mean, we don't have to go much further than that. You know, we want to see. And we also know that it's me seeing. And even if we can agree to the fact that it's not me seeing, we still don't want to be blind. So there we are, the clinging. And we were clinging to the forms that are arising. I think it's an absolute genius explanation of what we're on about. (laughs) I certainly have never heard it anywhere else, and I could never have thought of it in my wildest dreams of anything like that on my own I mean I never would even occur to me so now depend origination he who sees depend origination sees the Dhamma the Dhamma in this case the teaching the truth he who sees the truth sees depend origination and these five aggregates affected by clinging are dependently arisen the wish for reliance on, approval or acceptance of these five aggregates affected by clinging is origin origin of suffering. Now this is a very interesting statement because m- most of the time the origin of suffering is denoted as craving. 
Now, craving and clinging are not exactly the same, although they are used in the um, interspersed, uh, interacting. Yeah, they're interacting with each other. But here, it's definitely said that the wish for reliance on what I see, what I hear, what I taste, touch, smell, and think, the approval of it by myself and others, and the acceptance of these five aggregates by, as affected by clinging. So, the acceptance as me of these five is the origin of suffering. It's a very interesting statement because it doesn't have anything to do actually with wanting anything. It has only to do with the fact well, it does, approval, of course, is something to want. But what it actually depends on mostly is the fact that these five aggregates are considered by us our base for life and being. And we don't want to let go of them. Not one of them, not all of them, any of them. And we call them me. The removal of wishing and lust, the abandoning of wishing and lust for them, is a cessation of suffering. And at this point, too, friends, much has been done by the people. The removal of wishing and lust, and the abandoning of wishing and lust for them, wishing to have them, wishing to be them, wishing to have pleasant contact, but even having any contact. Now, that happens on the deathbed. Uh, there was a doctor in one of my meditation courses I think it was in Melbourne and he told the story that there was a person that he knew who was terminally ill and had been told that he was terminally ill and he had maybe one day he was absolutely in in agony absolute pain there was just no way anymore that enough morphine could be given so that the pain could be alleviated it just had been so much morphine already been given and his doctor asked him would you like to give me uh, would you like me to give you a little more morphine the pain will go but it's possible that you may not wake up and he would have had to agree to that and he said but doctor you don't want to take my life from me do you that's what this is all about we don't even care if it's bad what we're getting we just want to be this is a very extreme uh, case but not unusual I have you know asked uh, as many people that deal with sick and terminally ill people and they say told me it was not unusual if one hasn't practiced so we don't even mind if it's an unpleasant contact we just want to have it so what it says here it doesn't say that we are wishing and lusting for them because to have them pleasant it just says if we can remove the wishing and lust for them then we cease to suffer. Now, why do we cease to suffer when we remove the wish and lust for these aggregates? 
if we don't identify them, they keep on arriving. I mean, they're not going to be affected by this identification at all. The eye doesn't care one bit whether we think I'm seeing or it's just seeing. It hasn't got any say in the matter, it just sees as long as it's working. So if we abandon our identification with these aggregates, we no longer have to make a stand. We don't we no longer have to be of any particular status or stature. We don't have to own anything because these aggregates are working without any interference until the body breaks up and dies. So if we don't have to assert ourselves anymore, that's no problem. It's just happening. Life just keeps going. So if anybody wants to use (coughs) fists and clods and sticks, well, that's their problem. I don't mean that we might uh, be able to, you know, just be pummeled uh, to death like that, but probably get out of the way and just let these people do whatever they want. If they want something, well, let them have it. So um, uh, that's where suffering ends. If the assertion of self ends, and the assertion, the the self sits in our belief system that we are the aggregate. And yet, if we could drop it for a moment, the eye still sees, the ear still hears, the nose smells, the body touches. Whether we think it's me or not, it makes absolutely no difference to these aggregates. They couldn't care less. They just keep on doing it. But without the me in it, it doesn't matter. And that's where cessation of suffering happens. Right, is this quite clear or any questions on this? Now then, Saiputta goes on and uses the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body, and then the mind. And the, um, with the mind, I wish they would print these things. Just a minute, I'll try and read it with the mind. If the mind in oneself were intact, but no external Dhamma came to its threshold, and there were no appropriate conscious engagement, um, then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness. Now this is a very interesting uh, statement again about the mind. Um, And this is exactly what we're trying to do when we meditate. It's funny though that it becomes such a complicated sentence and all what this one trying to do is become calm in meditation, isn't it? But the sentence becomes so complicated. What happens is what it says here, the mind's intact, huh? Nothing wrong with the mind. Okay. 
but nothing, no external dhammas comes to the threshold of consciousness, no external phenomena. We don't pay attention to thoughts, we don't pay attention to any of the sense contacts, neither to the sitting nor to the hearing nor to the seeing, if it were. Um, we have no external dhammas coming to the threshold of consciousness, so there's no appropriate engagement then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness. What's the appropriate class of consciousness for the mind? I just want to check whether anybody's listening. Hmm? That's right. <laughs> I just want to know whether you're still with me. <laughs> That's right. The appropriate class of consciousness for the mind is thinking. So this is very nice also to, to read it like that because the, it's called the appropriate class of consciousness. It doesn't mean that the mind is not appropriately thinking. It doesn't mean that it's not appropriate for the eye to see. All of this is absolutely the right thing for those um, um, aggregates to do. The only thing that's not appropriate is for us to constantly identify and think that's me. That's the only thing that's not appropriate. Everything else fine. Simple, isn't it? Yeah, has to do it, I suppose. Now, with the body, the thing that it says is, if the body of oneself were intact, in other words, one has all the nerve ends and one can feel uh, sensations, right? If the body of oneself were intact, but no external tangibles came to its threshold and the threshold, and there were no appropriate conscious engagement, then there would be no manifestation of the appropriate class of consciousness. Well, exactly that also happens in meditation when we get concentrated. The body is intact, but the external tangibles, which is the sitting cushion that we touch upon and the uh, legs that are uh, crossing, the tangibles, the touching as aspect, does not come to the threshold of consciousness. So, because it doesn't, there and there's no appropriate engagement then, then there's no manifestation of that class of consciousness. In other words, we do not, do not have the touch sensation because we don't have the body sensation at that time. So we could see that this appropriate uh, response of our senses is all very fine and quite all right, except that we are making something out of it which we have dreamt up. We have dreamt it up and have made it into the uh, greatest uh, problem that exists in mankind, and because of that problem, mankind has such a, a situation as we know it. Everybody's got problems. There's no need to have any problem if we just allow the aggregates to keep on doing their thing. This is another thing. If we could look upon the aggregates as something that is just doing their thing, we wouldn't have to interject me. It's well worth trying, even for just a second. If we can manage for just a second to allow the seeing or the touching to happen 
and actually become so mindful, this is where mindfulness comes in, and become so attentive to that particular happening, we can notice that it is possible at that moment not to have that me idea. It's just happening. Walking while walking. Not me walking, it's just walking. Touching while touching. It's a very interesting way of doing things. One can actually try. When one is out, outside, for instance, there's, there's a lot to see. Seeing the object, which is the eye base, and then the external form which comes to its consciousness. And there's engagement. I'm seeing it. So then the seeing happens with that engagement. And just seeing without responding that I'm seeing it. The very um, worthwhile thing to do with any of the senses. And if it works for just a moment, which it could, if one is determined and mindful and attentive, one does get an inkling of what it could be like if one could let the aggregates work without interjecting our idea that this is me. And without having any other idea where me could be, of course. But just giving up and saying, well, all right then, it's just happening. It's, um, now if I can find this, should have looked, 21. with the other ones are they outside these books could you have a look the other two or did I leave them in my room this is volume three maybe they're outside I can't remember that I took them outside of maybe not not here then they must be in my room okay what I wanted to read out was a simile of the saw. Even if bandit savagely severed limb from limb with a two-handled saw, he who entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who carried out my teaching. But it's not in this particular volume, it's in another volume. So I thought it might be nice because this is part of this sutta. It was mentioned as part of the um, being attacked by clods and sticks and knives and so on. So we'll see what that says about. Okay, any questions at this point? That, that um, in, insight technique you just described, is that really any different than the way we've, I've been doing aggregates? Oh. I mean, is it just having in mind to, to kind of be more objective than usual or something? Or is it just practicing the aggregates that you're talking about? And that is practicing the aggregates without interjecting I'm seeing but just oh thank you very much thanks a lot yeah. that's good thanks <laughs> so this kind is of becoming aware of when you interject that or when that mm, mm, yeah. yes this is even a stronger thing to do 
this is the sutta and the simile of the soul it's a long story ah but this is very nice I have the story of Mistress Vedika. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, this is about the simile of the saw, that there's absolutely no justification for hate. Huh? On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove on at Apindika's Park. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Mulia Paguna was associating overmuch with the Bhikkhunis. Oh, dear, dear. He was associating so much with Bhikkhunis that if any bhikkhu in his presence spoke dispraise of those bhikkhunis, he would be angry and displeased and would rebuke him. And if any bhikkhu in those bhikkhunis' presence spoke dispraise of the Venerable Moliya Bhaguna, they would be angry and displeased and would rebuke him. So much was the Venerable Moliya Bhaguna associated with bhikkhunis. And then a certain bhikkhu went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side. When he had done so, he recounted what was taking place. And then the Blessed One addressed a certain bhikkhu thus, Come bhikkhu, tell the bhikkhu Mulya Paguna in my name that the teacher calls him. Yes, Venerable Sir, the bhikkhu replied. And he went to the Venerable Mulya Paguna and told him, Friend, the teacher calls you. Yes, friend, he replied. And he went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side. When he had done so, the Blessed One asked him, Paguna, is it true as it seems? that you are associating overmuch with bhikkhunis, that you are associating so much with bhikkhunis, that if any bhikkhu in your presence speaks this praise of those bhikkhunis, you are angry and... Then they are angry and displeased and rebuke him. So much are you associating, it seems, with bhikkhunis. Yes, Venerable Sir. Paguna, are you not a clansman who has gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness? Yes, Venerable Sir. Paguna, it is not proper for you, as a clansman gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, to associate overmuch with bhikkhunis. Therefore, if anyone in your presence speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis, you should abandon any wish and any thoughts based on the home life. And herein you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no bad words, and I shall abide compassionate for welfare with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate. You should train thus, Paguna. Therefore, if anyone in your presence gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, or a blow with a clod, or a blow with a stick, or a blow with a knife, you should abandon any wish and any thoughts based on the home life. And herein you should train thus, my mind will be unaffected, and I shall utter no bad words, and I shall abide compassionate for welfare, with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate. This is um, translated wrong. (laughs) The next one is, so if anyone in your presence speaks, speaks this praise of you, you should also abandon any wish, any thought based on the home life. And here you should train thus, my mind will be unaffected and I shall utter no bad words. I shall abide compassionate for welfare with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate. 
And therefore, if anyone should give you a blow with a hand, with a cloth or a stick and a knife, again, the same things, you should not utter bad words and should abide with loving kindness. So no matter whether things are said or done, to those you love, to those you do, or to yourself, no hate is um, uh, warranted. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, there was an occasion when the bhikkhus satisfied my mind. I addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, I eat food at a single sitting. By doing so, I perceive little affliction, little ailment, and also lightness, strength, and a comfortable abiding. And I had no need to keep on instructing those bhikkhus. I only had to arouse mindfulness in them. Suppose there were a chariot on even ground at the four crossroads, harnessed to thoroughbreds, waiting with whips lying ready, so that a skilled trainer of horses to be tamed might mount and taking the reins in his hand drive out and back by any road in any way he liked so too I had no need to keep on instructing those bhikkhus I had only to arouse mindfulness in them what he's doing is comparing the bhikkhus that listened to him immediately with thoroughbreds who are ready to go therefore bhikkhus abandon what is unprofitable devote yourself to what is profitable for that is how you will come to grow and increase in fulfillment in the Dhamma and discipline. Ah, there comes a nice story. Suppose there were a big salad tree grove near a village or town and it was choked with castor oil weeds. Well, you know what castor oil weeds are, don't you? There's got plenty of them in Australia. They're all over the place. You don't know what they are? Well, you're not from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, they grow as high as a tree and uh, they've got um, little balls on them that actually contain castor oil and uh, they can be harvested but they are just grow like a weed and uh, they're very uh, disliked by farmers and uh, a salad tree uh, it's a beautiful tree in India it's a tree which has flowers growing on the uh, on the stem itself not on the branches but on the trunk the flowers go on the trunk and uh, it's a big flower white and purple or sometimes just white and it has a most um, wonderful scent to it it's a, a heavenly scent and they, they do grow wild in India they're natives of India and they're very often associated with the Buddha because it says he was born in a solitary grove and also when he was dead the solitary uh, uh, the sala flowers were sprinkled on him out of nowhere so he's comparing these wonderful sala tree groves with this choking of his castor oil weeds and some man appeared seeking its benefit its surcease of bondage and he cut down and threw out the crooked saplings that robbed the sap cleaned up the interior of the grove tended the straight well-formed saplings so that the sala tree grove later on came to growth increase in fulfillment so too because abandon what is unprofitable and you will find growth increase in fulfillment in this Dhamma and discipline and now comes the story about being um, um, hypocritical formerly because in this same Savati there was a housewife called Vedeika and the good name of Mistress Videhika had spread thus 
Mistress Videhika is kind. She is gentle. She is demure. Now Mistress Videhika had a maid called Kali, who was clever, nimble, and neat in her work. And the maid Kali thought, My lady's good name has spread thus. Mistress Videhika is kind, gentle, and demure. How is it now? While she does not show anger, is it nevertheless actually present in her, or is it absent? Or else, is it just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her? Suppose I test my lady. So the maid Kali got up when it was day, and then Mistress Videhika said, Hey Kali, what is it, madam? What's the matter that you get up when it's day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing is the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up when it's day. And she was angry and displeased, and she scowled. And then the maid Kali thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it is actually present in herself, not absent. And it is just because my work is neat that my lady shows no anger, though it is actually present in her, not absent. Suppose I test my lady a little more. So the maid Kali got up when it was later in the day, and then Mistress Videhika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What's the matter that you get up when it's day? Nothing is the matter, madam. Nothing's the matter, you wicked girl, yet you get up when it's day, and she was angry and displeased, and she spoke words of displeasure. And then the maid Kali thought, The fact is that while my lady does not show anger, it's actually present in her. And it's just because my work is neat that my lady does not show anger, though it's actually present. Suppose I test my lady a little more. So the maid Kali got up when it was still later in the day. And then Mistress Videhika said, Hey, Kali, what is it, madam? What's the matter that you get up when it's day? Nothing's the matter, madam. Nothing's the matter, you wicked girl. Yet you get up later in the day. And she was angry and displeased, and she took a rolling pin and gave her a blow and broke her hat head. Then the maid Kali, with blood running from her broken head, denounced her mistress to the neighbors. See, ladies, the kind ones work. See, ladies, the gentle ones work. See, the demure ones work. See how angry and displeased she was with her only maid for getting up when it was day, and how she took a rolling pin and gave her a blow on the head. Then later on, the bad name of Mistress Videka spread thus. Mistress Videka is rough, violent, and merciless. <laughs> now, the Buddha is talking about the past, not uh, the present. There apparently isn't such a person when he's talking, but he said formerly, and one would actually imagine that this was in a former life. So too, Bhikkhu. Some Bhikkhu is quite kind, gentle, demure, so long as no disagreeable words touch him. But it is as soon as disagreeable words touch him that a bhikkhu needs to appear kind and gentle and demure. I do not call a bhikkhu easy to correct, who is only easy to correct by reason of robes, arms, foot, resting place, and the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick that he gets. Why is that? Because that bhikkhu is not easy to correct when he gets no robes, arms, foot, resting place, and the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick. The Buddha says that, it is important to be agreeable and kind when, when the disagreeable words touch you. And if one is only easy to correct when one gets things, that doesn't count. And these four that the Buddha is mentioning here, which are 
the robes, the arms, food, the resting place, and the requisite of medicine are actually the four things which are considered to be the requisites of life. And when we look at our own houses, we can see that we have plenty more than the requisites of life. Everybody's got far too much. So we need uh, robes and arms, food and resting place and medicine. Now, arms, food means food and a place to rest and robes, something to wear. And medicine when sick. So he's um, saying that unless one can be agreeable to disagreeable words and not do so only when one wants to get something, then one is easy to teach. But when a bhikkhu is easy to correct, since he honors, respects, and reveres only the Dhamma, him I call easy to correct, to revere only the Dhamma, the truth of the teaching. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should train thus. We shall be easy to correct, honoring, respecting, and revering only the Dhamma. You should train thus. Because there are these five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, accompanied by a mind of loving-kindness or by inner hate. These are the five kinds of speech that one can hear. When others address you, here in Bikus you should train thus, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no bad words and we shall abide compassionate for welfare with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate. Now this is exactly the same as what was said in the other sutta about ear contact. Eh? We shall abide with a mind of loving kindness extending to that person and we shall abide with an abundant, exalted, measureless mind of loving kindness without hostility or ill will, extending over the all-encompassing universe as its supporting object. This is how you should train. So, not only, when you hear these unpleasant things, not only should you extend loving-kindness and compassion for the person that's talking to you, but at the same time, use as a supporting condition the loving-kindness and um, measureless love to the whole of the universe. It's a supporting condition. Obviously, this isn't easy and immediately to do, but it is a training. It's a training of purification which has to accompany the training in the jhanas. The jhanas are the automatic training um, purification because when we're concentrated, we can't be negative. We can't only be one or the other. However, if we do not support this in our daily life with this same thing, which may and may not work all the time, but it's a training, we aren't doing enough in order to change ourselves really from the ordinary human being to the noble one. The Buddha does not expect people or the bhikkhus or anyone to be able to do this immediately. He says, this is training. You should train yourself thus, he says. This is all it is. It's a training. And as we see that it gives us ourselves the greatest of benefit, immediately it becomes clear that this training is good for ourselves. So whatever kind of speech people have, 
timely or untimely, in other words, it's appropriate or inappropriate, if it's true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, accompanied by a mind of loving kindness or by inner hate, the response should be compassion and loving kindness and no inner hate. Here's a very interesting simile, which is very famous also, because suppose a man came with a hoe and a basket and said, I shall make this great earth to be without earth. And he dug here and there. And he strewed the here and there. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. What is strewed? What is he strewing? And spat here and there. And made water here and there, saying, Be without earth, be without earth. How do you conceive this, because Would that man make this great earth to be without earth? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because this great earth is deep and immense, it cannot possibly be made to be without earth thus. Eventually, the man would reap weariness and disappointment. And so he says, in the same way, because there are these five causes of speech that others may use when they address you. And herein, because you should train thus, our minds will be unaffected. Saving paper. It's a good thing I'm supposed to save paper, but uh, it does make it difficult. Our minds shall be unaffected. Where are we? Paragraph 12. And we shall utter no bad words. And we shall abide compassionate for welfare with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate for that person and also with an abundant, exalted, measureless mind without hostility towards the all-encompassing world. So the uh, simile is that one reaps oneself weariness and disappointment if one doesn't stay with a love, loving kindness mind and a uh, compassionate mind. It's just as foolish and absurd as trying to make the great earth without earth. So equally foolish and absurd it is to respond in kind because one reaps the weariness and disappointment oneself, not the other one. And this is, the, I would say, the most important point in the personal purification. This is the one which takes pride of place. I shall reap weariness and disappointment if I don't stay with a mind of loving-kindness and compassion, no matter what happens. That we can't do it is a second matter, but that we train ourselves thus because we understand that this is our greatest advantage that we could possibly find. Well, I leave something out, and I'll come to the bandits with the with the, the the saw, okay? Because I promised you that part. And it's exactly the same thing. It just says, even where bandits savagely to sever you limb from limb with a two-handled saw, he who entertained hate in his heart on that account would not be one who carried out my teaching. So actually, what he, what is happening here? It's getting worse and worse. Uh, in the beginning, it's just nasty words and uh, then 
after the words it comes um, no uh, the, the words are getting more similes what they are like and then comes the, uh, the physical assault now this is how you should train herein our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no bad words and we shall abide compassionate for welfare with a mind of loving kindness and no inner hate we shall abide with a mind of loving kindness extending to that person and we shall abide with an abundant exalted mind of loving kindness without hostility or ill will extending over the all-encompassing world as its supporting object that is how you should train yourself and because you should keep this instruction of the simile of the saw constantly in mind because do you see the course of speech trivial or gross that you could not endure no venerable sir therefore because you should keep this instruction of the simile of the saw constantly in mind that will be long for your welfare and happiness what the Buddha is asking them is the um, the speech is that a trivial matter compared to the simile of the saw and that you couldn't endure that so he says that therefore keeps the simile of the saw in the mind so that is what the blessed one said the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the blessed one's words I thought that because it is mentioned here with the simile of the saw that we should um, um, read about it because first of all it's a very famous simile of course because one could just imagine happening that to oneself and uh, in this particular sutta the, um, the first one that we read the loving kindness and compassion is not brought out what is brought out is the insight the insight into the fact that we are just consisting of aggregates and elements and because of that we don't have to react and uh, retaliate but here when the actual discourse of the simile of the saw is uh, seen the insight does not is not mentioned what is mentioned is that the only way to train oneself if one doesn't want to reap weariness and disappointment in oneself is to train oneself with loving kindness and compassion so this is the reason why I wanted to read this out because we do need both we are not able to retaliate with loving kindness and compassion without insight and I think I could say that without much fear of contradiction but if we have both if we have the insight and our training in loving kindness we have a chance and if the insight is deep and profound there's no no difficulty and this is what the most important aspect of this sutta is and that's why I wanted to bring the two together so we have two ways of training and this is what we're doing actually three ways of training calm insight and loving kindness but this is what we're doing trying to gain insight and train ourselves in loving kindness and compassion naturally our loving kindness and compassion does go out the window the minute we are attacked but it's not necessary if we ask ourselves who's being attacked air element water element fire element earth element which which aggregates being attacked it's very helpful to consider that any questions on any of this?
guess I have a, um, a consideration of the difference in our societies and the amount of aggression, say, that goes on towards women in our particular society and just allowing that and knowing, you know, the problems that, that women have, have because of it. Well, a lot of the uh, problems which have been found in shelters for abused women is that these silly women go right back where they came from mm. and let themselves be abused again. Yeah. I know, I've read about it. And uh, I not talk to people about it. That's worth it. That. You see, if these women were taught Dhamma and could take it in, some of this um, absurd behavior would stop because the reason they're going back is because of clinging and uh, clinging and fear and all the rest of it. The Buddha doesn't say that you have to stick around. He says that you should get some insight and retaliate with loving kindness and compassion. He doesn't necessarily advocate in any of this that we have read that you need to be killed. Just know what's happening to you and then see your reaction. So, if these women were not having this kind of clinging, they wouldn't go back and they could start a new life and uh, learn from their old mistakes. But uh, unfortunately, very few people learn from their old mistakes and keep making the same one. Uh, yes, um, well, there is one aspect of a contemplation that is, may I be able to protect my own happiness? And uh, it's a loving-kindness contemplation which we do in the courses, not a meditation, a contemplation. And the first thing that we need to contemplate is, what is my own happiness? What is it? And then when I want to have found it, how am I going to protect it? And happiness, is under no circumstances meant by the Buddha as our sense contacts, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. And it's also not meant as just um, thinking nice thoughts. It's which most people can't do anyway. You know, they're, you know, it's usually half and half or less. But what is their real happiness is the inner peace. So we need to know how do I protect my inner peace. Well, obviously not in a situation where I'm being physically abused or mentally abused, anything. I'm certainly not going to protect my own happiness. So, and a person, obviously, who isn't happy, isn't going to make anybody happy. So it's absurd to remain in a situation which produces great unhappiness. Because everybody who's going to connect to that person will sense that great unhappiness is not going to have any um, benefit from it. So we need to protect our own happiness, we need to help others to protect their happiness, and we need to find out what is it that is happiness. And obviously peace of mind. There's no other greater happiness than peace of mind. We can equate happiness with pleasure, we can equate it with elation, but that's not what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about peace, peace of mind. <laughs>
So while there is a great deal of this um, unfortunate aggression going on, because people are naturally aggressive, it's also not being dealt with properly. But also not everybody wants to hear the Dhamma. Yes. I have to what extent does karma come into that? That some abuse? That, yes, that some people think aren't able to change or try to change and it doesn't work out. There's the element of free will there, of course. But yes, well, mm-hmm. uh, there is a connection with that. I usually like to use the uh, simile of tying, uh, let's say, a dog on a leash and putting it on a stake. If you have your karma allowed, allows you to go as far as the leash will go in a circle. Now, if you've made a lot of good karma, you've got a very long leash. And if you've made a lot of bad karma, you've got a very short leash. You haven't got much choices. The more good karma one has in one's background. But, again, even if you've only made, you know, very little good karma, and you have a very short leash, you still have choices. And if you keep on making the wrong choices, well, you know, this leash gets shorter and shorter. <laughs> so we have, you know, we do have these opportunities, and we do muck them up too, because we're not always aware of what's happening. This is where mindfulness and meditation helps us a great deal, to see clearer, to have a, a clearer view of our own uh, opportunities and actions and so forth. It's very, very uh, useful to be very um, careful with these things. So I'm, I'm, I don't know whether our, um, that's another thing which I was going to answer you, I'm not sure whether our particular society or time is worse than others. I'm not sure about that. I mean, uh, these things may have been the same, you know, in past uh, in past centuries and, and so forth. And who knows? Women always wanted to be needed. I mean, it's ingrained in women that yeah. they think, well, but he needs me, or he keeps needing me. Yes. Needing and also uh, wanting to be liked, wanting to be yeah. approved of. And then get a woman that doesn't want that, and then watch all hell break loose. I can write a book about it. <laughs> yes, well, you see, the human nature has the six roots, no? Greed, hate, and delusion, and also the three opposites. So we are constantly in this pickle until we finally see the aggregates working without anybody sitting inside and then of course those few people that do see that are out of the red you know but the others it's a funny world and there's no solution within the world none whatsoever all these wonderful ideas how to, you know, stop the wood chip uh, industry and uh, to uh, watch the ozone level and all that, it's all wonderful. But it's never going to take away Dukkha. It might keep our trees intact, but it's not going to take away Dukkha. (laughs) 
the greatest kindness, the Buddha said, what is it? He said, the greatest gift is the gift of the Dhamma. The greatest kindness that one can do a person, that if one, if they have Dukkha, you know, and they do want to be helped. And not everybody wants to be helped, but if they do, you know, somebody comes and really says, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what to do and I'm in a bad state and so forth. They do want to be helped. If we can help them with any kind of Dhamma, that we have already understood and seen in ourselves, that's the greatest kindness. And yet there's this interesting story, I may have told it already, where a man came to the Buddha, crying, shaking, being in such a state of uh, uh, misery that it was pitiful to see. And the Buddha said to him, what happened? What's the matter? And he said, I just lost my only beloved son, he died. And the Buddha said, what we love brings sorrow. And the man said, what nonsense. And turned around and ran away and told all his friends that the Buddha didn't know at all what was going on. And yet he himself was the epitome of the proof that what we love brings sorrow. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few minutes. Let the warmth of love arise in your feeling of softness and giving.
reach out with that softness and warmth from your heart to everyone here fill and surround everyone here with a feeling of love and compassion Reach out to those people who are near and dear to you. Give them the softness and warmth of your love. Reach out to all your friends in friendship and love, filling them, surrounding them with the warmth from your heart. Think of all the people you know Fill them and surround them with the soft giving that is love Loving them, not expecting any result.
think of anyone who might not approve of you doesn't speak nicely to you or about you may have accused you abused you in the past love that person too in the same way as everyone else soft, warm and giving Think of people everywhere, near and far, known or unknown, all having dukkha, essentially lonely, trying to find some relief, love them, give them your warmth and your care, fill them with the gift from your heart. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the warmth and softness throughout your body. Make it strong and true, that feeling. Surround yourself with it. knowing the strength and the protection it gives.
beings have love for each other.